Well, hello there. My name is Chris Angel, and my pronouns are they, them. Welcome to Allyship is a Verb, the LGBTQ podcast that explores and humanizes practicing allyship for the LGBTQ community and beyond. Hello, this is Petey Gibson. My pronouns are he, him. Whew. I am currently in Boise, Idaho for a bit. It's fairly similar to Colorado, where I currently live, especially in terms of scenery and weather. Trying to keep it to the little blue bubble, (laughs) where I've now seen a few rainbow stickers on cars, which is very nice. Anyway, on the 16th, I was preparing a training session for therapists, and all of a sudden I had an epiphany about my gender. I feel comfortable sharing about half of what I came up with right now, because the other half requires more time for me to sit with it, but I am now adopting neuroqueer as part of my identities. This is big because in short, some of you know I was late diagnosed for both ADHD and autism. Now that I know this about myself, it's easier for me to recognize that pretty much every decision I make about my gender, and gender expression, is through my sensory lens. Meaning, my hair is short because it's a wash-and-go style. I don't wear makeup because I hate the way it feels on my face. I prefer clothing that's more comfortable and less likely to make me itchy. Even gender-affirming surgeries and hormones are to help with sensory experiences I had previously that felt... awful. Anyway, That's just a little bit of it, but I wanted to share that with all of you for now because I think a very specific chain of events have occurred to lead me to this moment, and it's really exciting because I couldn't explain my motivations for gender and gender expression previously. Anyway, on to my guest. Petey Gibson is an LA-based, Boston-bred trans comedian, actor, producer, and writer. You may have seen him on TV on such shows as Broad City, Grace and Frankie, and Transparent. He was also in the Emmy-nominated doc miniseries This Is Me and MasterCard's true name commercial, the first all-trans commercial of its kind. We'll talk a bit about how he co-produced and starred in the award-winning indie feature The Sympathy Card. And there's a few reasons why it's special. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've geeked out over Camp Brave Trails before, of which he spearheaded their theater program, which is pretty rad. Petey and I were introduced by Jaffe, who was on season one, and Petey, Jaffe, and Providenza all work on Them Fatale, a drag show in LA that fundraises for local LGBTQ causes. And now they all have their own episodes, which is pretty rad. Thank you, Jaffe, for the introduction. A quick content warning, this episode talks a bit about LGBTQ plus youth suicide statistics, as well as being kicked out by family. And now, three self-reflections before we dive into the conversation, and be sure to stick around after the conversation for three more. Number one, what are my views on masculinity? What do I think healthy masculinity looks like? Number two, do I think soft skills are only for girls and women? Number three, 
What do I do to make safer spaces for people in my life who are sober? And now, our conversation. You are a trans mask creator who is an actor, writer, and producer. What do those intersections mean to you? Those intersections come both out of necessity and also out of my interest in having my hands in a lot of things. So it's, I've sort of always made my own work. Part of that is because a lot of roles haven't existed for me. But also I come from a live theater, underground variety, drag king background in Boston, which has a really vibrant underground art scene. And so I, rather than like having gone to college for acting, I came up in a place where it was like I was, you know, co-creating and building stuff from scratch and sort of there were no rules. We could sort of make whatever we could think up. So I feel really excited that that was my college, basically, <laughs> so that I don't feel pigeonholed into one thing. That sounds like a dream. It's delightful and exhausting, and I would love more money, but I do love my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yes to all of that. Yeah. We see a lot of examples of toxic masculinity, but masculinity in itself isn't toxic. So. What or who inspires you to tap into the masculinity that you embody, and how would you describe yours? Ooh, good question. Um, yeah, I agree that masculinity is not inherently toxic, and I really fuck with a gentle masculinity. I really enjoy it. I would say, you know, Mr. Rogers is an enormous inspiration for me in the way that I talk to children and in the way that I conduct myself as a man. I think that he he was somebody that was like, hey, not only do we have feelings and should we have feelings, but if we don't find a way to express our feelings, we're gonna be sick. And so for me, Mr. Rogers is a great example of masculinity. Karamo Brown is a really great example of masculinity um, for me, um, big fan of Karamo. I'm also working recently on trying to get a project out with Justin Baldoni, who does the Man Enough podcast, and that has been an incredible example of like cis men doing the work for themselves, by themselves, or not necessarily because he really invites in all these other voices, but it is nice to feel cis straight people saying like, hey, something has to change. So um, Justin's a really good example for me as well. Last season, we talked about the Alok episode because it's just like one of those must listen to episodes for anyone. Everyone. Yeah. For everyone. It's incredible. What a dialogue. Wow. Well, I'm not going to ask you, can you tell us anything about the project? Because I know sometimes <laughs> those things are like under wraps. So I'll just skip that. But it is under wraps, but I hope I can talk about it soon because that means I've sold it. Yes. Fingers crossed. You get offered roles that are for cisgender men, as well as trans men or maybe trans mask folks. Are there any differences between when you play a trans man or mask character versus a cisgender one? Yeah, the cis dudes get to be like dudes in a boardroom, doctors, or they're like defined by what they have to say in a room. And usually the trans roles are talking about being trans is kind of a bummer. I guess that's where society is. I forget that so many people still don't know a trans person because I am 
surrounded by them. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes feel like I'm in the twilight zone when I'm like the only trans person in the room or when people like haven't heard of it or need a 101, which is why I'm committed to doing these podcasts also to sort of, you know, I like to encourage curiosity. And so if folks are curious, like, I'm happy to be the first trans person that you know. So that's fine. But yes, the role, the content of the roles are very different. Mm-hmm. So you did an interview with X Bulletin and talked about how you're a trans man promoting a film, The Sympathy Card, in which you played a lesbian. How does that conversation typically go during like promos and interviews? And what support do you have in place to help with any potential awkward or uncomfortable conversations? Yeah, so the last big project I did before transitioning was a film that I starred in and um, produced um, called The Sympathy Card. It's a feature-length lesbian rom-com about cancer and other things and shot at my hometown. And that was, what a way to go out. (laughs) I couldn't ask because I came of age as a lesbian in Boston. And so being able to make just a love letter to that time in my life was really beautiful. And then I started transitioning and then a pandemic hit and cut short our festival run. We were slated for international festivals and we got six months into it and everything shut down. And so I am now a, you know, quote unquote, like passing bearded (laughs) dude promoting my lesbian film. And so me and my co-producer realized really quickly that we needed to just incorporate it as part of like a, almost like a human interest story in our promotions, which I'm really fine with. I'm really, really open talking about this. So for me, our plan was always to lead with it. And that was almost like a point of interest. Like, hey, here's a bunch of things that haven't been done before. We haven't seen this type of film. We haven't seen this behind the scenes story. You know, we had 75% women slash queer slash BIPOC crew. So like, it's simply part of our storytelling. And in terms of if I have something in place, like emotionally, no, because it's my life. <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> well, I wish that weren't the case, but yeah. <laughs> so like, I hear what you're saying and I'm hearing that like, you have to come with disclaimers or front loading. In terms of PR, it's simply just messy and confusing if I don't. It's, yeah. you know, when I do talkbacks at screenings and people watch the film and then I come up there, I immediately say like, hey, by the way, I have a beard now, you know, we just have a laugh. And But I think otherwise, then your audience is going, wait, what am, what's happening? And it's not transphobic, it's simply confusing. So right. it is a little tough for me, you know, apart from like my pride in the film, my pride in everyone that worked on it, you know, the great credits and the great, all of that, it is a little tough just as a trans person to do a lot of screenings and talkbacks and promotions where my pre-transition face and body is like all over the poster and, you know, all over the trailer. So that's like, it's, that's a little bit of a reckoning for me, but I've, I guess I do have in place like um, other trans mass creatives that I've talked to because it's just sort of part of it. You know, my acting reel has 10 years of work. So what are you going to do? It's a little tough to <laughs> have a career that is so front facing. Yeah, because in some ways I can imagine it may feel awkward to take up space as a white man, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, life is complex and life is long. And we've, you know, we've always had words to describe this outside of trans people like we have midlife crisis 
You know, like that, we acknowledge that in general, people do not stay the same for 80 years. People, you know, go abroad. People are able to talk about like, oh, that was the year that I hiked through the Andes or this was, you know, then I had children and my life really slowed down, but then they graduated. Now I have empty nest. Like we, we have all these things. That's, that's simply how it is. And so for me, I think life is complicated and queer identities are complicated. I, I was a lesbian. I don't, I was a little girl. I'm so excited. I was raised a little girl because I've got a lot of soft skills that I think <laughs> men, cis men my age do not. So I'm grateful for that. And also, sometimes it would really be nice to just exist as I am now. That's not usually a luxury that I have, but I'm also really proud to be out and model not only what it can look like for younger trans people, but what it can look like for people my age who are not trans, who simply want to grab their life and live it how they see they should. It's so hard to me that trans people are being just ravaged in the media and through laws and are just being targeted because I'm like, I think trans people got it figured out. To be a person who can look so deep inside yourself and know that what you have been told by everyone around you is not quite right and to be out loud and say, actually, I need to make a change and I'm going to do it because I know that it's the right thing. Like literally how beautiful would our world be if everyone would do that? It doesn't have to be about gender. If people could leave their hometowns or go for the job that they've always wanted or whatever, I just, it's a bummer. Because I think, I think we're models and we're being held up as monsters. And I'm like, but that's not quite true, is it? <laughs> exactly. So you came out as a lesbian at 17. And I'm wondering if there's anything you miss about being in the lesbian community. Oh my god. Yes, what a fucking nightmare to, like, leave the warm bosom of, like, women's only spaces <laughs> to fucking mm-hmm. hang out with, like, w- uh, domestic terrorists. Like, what am I doing being a white man instead of being a woman? <sighs> this is how you know that trans is not a choice, because <laughs> I... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I really love women's only spaces. I love the way that... And I think it has to do a lot with how we raise girls versus how we raise boys. There is so much emotional understanding amongst women that is, you know, a really beautiful silver lining to the patriarchy. We do such disservice to young girls and young women and women. But in those spaces, there's so much I have found, you know, empathy, understanding, uh, things that just don't need to be said, a sense of safety. I get really nervous when I'm around too many men. I always will. Men are inherently scary to me, and I think the patriarchy has allowed that to run rampant so that even if there's a nice guy, you're still like, but what happens if someone says no in the wrong way? Yeah, there's definitely pieces that I miss as well. You know, there were women-only spaces that I I took myself out of. You know, I'm in a sobriety program, and so I... You know, that was really hard to leave like women's only spaces, but it also was the thing to do. You know, I don't need my voice taking up space in that room. It's something I'm really happy to step aside for. It's just not for me anymore, and that's okay. I have a lot of like gratitude for listening to myself, and I've had a lot of support, which goes to show like what my friend group is. I don't, 
with the exception of a sister, I don't really have a relationship with family. So I've really built a community. And so when I came out, it was really more of a like, finally, <laughs> than a um, what, you know, because I've anyone that that sort of had an issue in my circle is no longer in my circle. So once I transitioned, that was set myself upright. In that same interview I mentioned previously, you talked about how, and this is a direct quote, a third of the sympathy card cast and crew were queer and everyone was encouraged to speak up if they thought any details were wrong. And when I think of trans masculine representation in particular, the person I immediately think of is Elliot Page, and it's hard to think of anyone else really. Why do you think we still have barriers for the LGBTQ plus community being able to write and tell their own stories? I mean, Hollywood is a microcosm of America at large. So there are a lot of cis, white, you know, het, old male voices in the room. I think just like, you know, black storytelling or disabled storytelling, it's always considered really niche. And because it's a business, they're constantly thinking, who is the audience for this? And because our stories are considered niche, they're considered a gamble. And because we're in a business, we're not doing a lot of gambling. We're starting to see trans stories a little bit, but they're almost exclusively geared towards Gen Z because I think there's this idea in Hollywood that like the only trans people are teenagers and the only audience for trans stories are teenagers and people in their 20s. And I'm like, well, that's not true. We've been here a long time. There's a lot of people, you know, who are operating in front of and behind the camera. And it's really interesting to have Elliot have come out because it's all of a sudden it feels like everybody is like, oh, Elliot Page is the trans guy. And it's been really interesting for those of us that have been here. Elliot is still really new in his transition and has done an incredible job for our representation. I absolutely loved the way that the Umbrella Academy handled that storyline and they brought in Thomas Page McBee, who's a trans mask writer, to help with that storyline. But I think in general, people hold Elliot as like an anomaly or they're able to get it because they've seen Elliot's whole career. So there's like a span. I'm in a community of a lot of trans mask creatives. So if anybody out there needs a director, a producer, a writer, a second AD, an editor, great, hire trans guys. We can only help your story. You've played roles on shows like Broad City and Grace and Frankie. What would a show need to look like and do for you to feel like your story is being told as a trans mask person? I would need Hollywood to buy my pilot that is fucking lit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of storytelling for funny, almost 40-year-old trans men. There's just not. I think any trans stories that I'm seeing are geared really young because Hollywood's always a little behind the curve. And I think it's like, oh, young people are trans and trans people are young and that's the math equation so i would really love to be playing trans guys that are my age that are transitioned which is not really a word but for the sake of um you know the visual i guess of it like i said earlier on i'm a writer and a producer and i i write for myself i've got a couple pieces that one is about to start going out and one is in um i just finished the deck for it but i write really super fun comedy focused older trans mask stories that aren't in any way focused on trauma that aren't focused on coming out because 
me and my friends have a lot of fucking fun. And for me, I'm the happiest that I've ever been. I fucking love my life. And there's this idea that transness is always about grief or, or maybe making yourself small. And I feel like I've never been bigger. I've quieted so many screaming voices to just listen to the one voice inside me that knows who I am. And I've connected myself to that voice and said, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to do everything I can to be who we know we are. So what a fucking gift. How, like, how delightful. <laughs> I, have the, I have the best time. Obviously, that's an enormous privilege, me saying that. You know, I've done a lot of work to cultivate this life. I am estranged from my parents. I, you know, it's like I, it is a blessing to say as a trans person that I feel safe and I love my life. But I feel really committed to leading with joy. I think that's part of the revolution. When you were on the Unlearning podcast, you talked about a perfect day and it including time spent sunbathing in your boxer briefs <laughs> with your, I believe, post-op chest. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there can be a lot of insecurity for folks because of being afraid of people asking about any scarring or finding out that they're trans. And you called it a pure small pleasure to be able to sunbathe like that. Are there any other pure small pleasures that you're looking forward to in your life related to your trans mask identity or any other moments that have happened for you? I remember the first time that I we never know if we're like, quote unquote, passing or not. For me, that's not necessarily like the goal. A lot of my physical masculine traits came in during the pandemic. So once the world cracked open a little bit, I went to a Staples and I walked in the door and the male security guard was there and he gave me like a slight nod and he was like, how you doing today, sir? And I just nodded back at him. And I kept walking and I felt this like, it was almost like a cold sheet went over me. I, it was so pleasurable. And I suddenly was like, I don't think I knew how much space it took up to be misgendered in public. I hated it. It happened all the time. I was uncomfortable all the time. But the amount of space that I have now when I just walk into a store and someone says, what's up, man? and I keep going, someone hands me my change, they say, have a nice day, sir. It has radically changed my life and it is deeply pleasurable every single time to live your entire life and have every single person that you meet not know who you are by looking at you is a special kind of anxious hell. And to now suddenly have that barrier gone, it is like freed, I would say like 90% of my mind when I'm out in public. And I'm like, oh my God, this is how fucking white men get so much done. They just get to exist as human beings. Women have to constantly be looking around. They have to constantly be policing their tone. They have to constantly be checking themselves and reading the room and doing all that stuff. People of color constantly have to be like looking around, you know, on guard, waiting for someone to say that there's something that they're not, you know, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I am in this fucking bizarro world where I'm being seen as a white man and I have got so much energy, so much free time. It is disgusting and it's insulting and it's pleasurable and it's awful to like realize like, oh, this is what it feels like to just be a man. I could get angry in public and people would just be like, that guy's angry. It wouldn't be me being a, a woman or a queer person or whatever getting angry in public. It's 
So it's like this blessing and curse that I <laughs> I know what it's like now, and I can't unknow it, and it is fucking wild. I've committed my full stand-up set to talking about how easy men have it, though, so that is my part of my work. Because <laughs> they don't even know. They don't know what they don't know. But I know. I'm a gender spy. I know what it's like on the other side, so I commit to letting men know as much as possible how good they have it. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because my height is working for me because I'm like, I don't know, 5'11 or something. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. <sighs> but again, so not a trans guy, but trans guys get very jealous of that because I think you're what, like 5'4 or something? I am 5'4. But you you said you feel like you're taking up all this new space now and everything. So, And I'm I'm pretty sure in a podcast you said that it's just not something that you're insecure about. So I guess I'm wondering, how did you work through that? Because I just feel like I've heard from so many trans guys, it's, it's a pain point for them to be short, if they are. Well, luckily I'm a comedian. Anything that irks me, I make a joke about it, say it on stage and get an audience to laugh with me. So my stand-up set kind of starts like, I see you looking at me, you're wondering, is he short or is he trans? The answer is, I am both, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um... I also have a big personality, a big smile. I tend to read as big, and that's more important to me personality-wise. I forget that I'm short, too. That's kind of a dysphoria thing that I immediately go, this is toxic masculinity, it doesn't fucking matter, your masculinity is not tied to your height. But I'll sometimes see myself in pictures, and I'm like, oh my god, is that how people see me? Like, Because I don't feel short, and then I see, <laughs> I see myself, and I'm like, oh, I'm small. I totally forgot. So that's kind of like a dysphoria thing, only in the sense that, wow, the way that I see myself is not how people see me. I forgot and now I'm reminded. And that used to be in pictures, it would be my gender. So now it's simply my height, but that's, you know, I feel like maybe at a certain point, everybody has that. People think they look a certain way and then they see a picture of themselves and they're like, Jesus Christ, is that, is that what we're all seeing? But for the most part, I'm cute and happy. You know, what more could I want? You've mentioned it a little bit. Congrats on being eight years sober. Oh my God, what a blessing. Thank you. Yeah. A lot of the scenes you frequent tend to revolve around alcohol. I know especially around comedy. I'm curious, what are some of the things you've seen communities and venues get right about making a safer space for you to not feel pressured to drink? Well, you know, part of that is on me. I didn't go to bars for years. I actually quit doing stand-up comedy for about two years because I was being paid in drink tickets. I, they were always in bars. There was always alcohol. And for me, I always had a couple shots before I got on stage, and I basically had to relearn that, like, at the end of the day, I am the most responsible for myself. And I still, at eight years, if I know friends are all going to a bar, I'll ask myself, is this okay? And they'll go, yep, it's okay. And I go, but there are times even now where I leave places early. So it's really being in control of myself and, and on top of my recovery and having like a good spiritual center. But yeah, I think the queer community can and does do a really good job about centering things not around alcohol. That being said, it's still really hard. You know, like brunch seems to mean mimosas. Yeah, Dancing seems to be drink specials. Getting together for a Saturday afternoon seems like happy hour, so that's really difficult. I run, along with two other amazing people, Jaffe and Providenza Catalano, I think they've both been on your 
They have. <laughs> show. Yeah, they have. So the three of us run a fundraiser drag king show called Them Fatale. And that's in an outdoor venue. There is a bar like attached to it, but it is not alcohol heavy space. Half the time I get on the mic, I do mention that I'm sober. And so we've cultivated a space that's about community and connection. So it's not a pro-alcohol space. It's not an anti-alcohol space, but we threw a huge pride party this year. It was my first time throwing one. And one of the things that we said is this is not alcohol heavy. We didn't bring any extra, you know, alcohol sponsors in. It wasn't about that. It was about like having tacos and making out with a cutie and having a good dance party. And those are all more fun. When I think about when I used to attend pride celebrations, it felt like that's all it was, was alcohol, having a major alcohol sponsor, and then people sometimes out of control. But yeah, just like super alcohol driven. I'm not someone who's sober. As a leader, though, I try to be attuned to the needs of different people and communities. Because for me, the queer community hasn't always been great about not centering things around alcohol. That's why I'm always like curious about how other people are experiencing it, especially now, because I don't, I'm a little bit more of a homebody these days. And I'd rather like go to a park or something. I'm just always curious about how folks can make spaces more expansive in that way. So we don't have to like, just feel like we need to default to that. Yeah, I mean, Dyke Day does a really good job of offering an alternate that to pride. And I think that's really beautiful. I went to Dyke Day this year and ate a ton of grapes and saw a ton of friends. <laughs> I wasn't missing alcohol at all. It wasn't... Was someone like feeding them to you? I feel like anytime I hear about someone eating grapes, I imagine... Yeah, it sounds really Dionysus, <laughs> I know. I wish it was that erotic, but I simply was just eating grapes. But also, you know, with anything, find your people. We'll be right back after this break. International Pronouns Day is the third Wednesday each October. This year, it lands on October 19th. Does your company or organization encourage employees to share their pronouns in places like meetings and email signatures? Is it normalized at all? Do people know what to do if they make a mistake? I help businesses and nonprofits roll out thoughtful and strategic plans for pronouns across companies, including training all staff. Book some time with me at chrisangelmurphy.com so we can talk about what that might look like for your place of work. Thank you for listening. And now back to the learning. The right wing does an amazing job at propaganda. One of the things that they've said is like, oh, you live in a bubble. And I'm like, yeah, I do, because outside that bubble wants to fucking kill me. And as far as I know, I have one life to live. And so if I'm surrounded by trans people, by sober people, by joyful people, by people that work with children, by people that work in comedy, I am living my best, most amazing life. And everyone lives in a bubble. Everyone in a small town lives in a bubble. Everyone in a city. Your bubble might be your workplace. Like the idea that it's shameful to not you know, to be in a bubble, that's literally human nature. There's millions and millions and millions of people. We don't know all of them. So find your people. If you go to an event and you're not drinking and you see other people that aren't drinking, go make fucking friends with them. Go seek out these spaces because it's only good for your psyche to surround yourself with people that there's circular mentorship. So with everything that you just shared, what 
would it look like to get away from what pride has become with the corporations and to go back to something that's more honoring our roots as a community, as far as where we are as people? What do you wish corporate pride would morph into? I mean, I definitely think it's already happening. Like Gen Z is just incredibly aware, I think, of all the cracks in the foundation. I think they're looking at everything and they just keep going, why? Why is this this way? Like, this seems very simple. I feel like Gen Z has shown the spotlight on everything that's not working and they're doing a great job at starting to hold people's feet to the fire for accountability. But anyway, I, th- I think those things are already happening. I think that people want, you know, to make the community they want. Again, you know, them our Them Fatale Drag King show is really community-based and mission-based beyond anything else. Those are the two things that we hold nearest and dearest. Uh, Dyke Day LA is a huge, you know, huge event. And it is so joyful because it's not based around alcohol sponsors and it's not based around fucking bank of america being like hey gay (laughs) give us money i think the jig is up that seems like something that has really just the past 10 years corporate pride has become so massive and the backlash now seems like that's unrecoverable so the hey gay is based on a video that exists and there's actually a follow-up one that came out this year so if i can find them again i will put them in the show notes on the episode page yeah meg stalter did a really it kind of launched her virally she's now on hacks and she i think she's getting her own show now but she started this whole hey gay and it is a perfect pairing <laughs> it really is because i have listeners from all over Can you describe what Dyke Day LA is in your own words? Dyke Day LA, I'm not part of it in any way. I'm just a happy participant. Though Them Fatale actually did raise money for Dyke Day this year because it's all donation-based, community-based. It is a huge party in a large like public park. The location has changed over the years where they say dykes of all genders are welcomed. So it's a really queer women-focused collection of just like a huge party all day. People bring picnics, they bring food, there's booths for vendors, there's live music and performances happening all day. There's like a BDSM demonstration tent, um, like a dog fashion show at some point, or like like people just like show off their dogs. Babies are welcome. So you have just every type of person in community together. It's a place where you go and you, I went this year and I ran into probably 25 people before I even got to where my friends were. It was the best. If you live in LA, come. And if you like to support those things, give them some money. It's exceptional what they've done. I used to go in its earlier days and it's become so much more. I mean, back then it was just like a bunch of us showing up at a park basically and just kind of hanging out. Yeah, well, it's scheduled on Pride Weekend in LA. So it was always meant as an alternative to corporate pride, which usually is also like gay, cis, male centered. Yeah. And it feels crappy to be in WeHo around. I experienced a lot of misogyny pre-transition at Pride. And so this was a great place to just like feel good about yourself and be around people that you like that have that smile when they see you even if you've never met yeah when i was a 20 something growing up in los angeles you know as a gay baby (laughs) 
the only spaces we had were mostly dominated by gay men. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go because, I mean, they barely had like ladies night or something existing. Yeah, I remember doing that and I just never felt comfortable. But a lot of it was in West Hollywood and Jaffe and I talked about it on our episode a little bit too. But they all have different vibes because like Long Beach felt a lot better than West Hollywood Pride. And San Diego Pride was pretty cool. San Francisco Pride was cool. But yeah, they all have a different vibe and different people who show up that really make or break it, I think. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like the organizers, you know, whoever's involved that year. But so speaking of the drag show that you produce, you've been in the drag scene for quite some time now, including as a performer. And I asked drag queen Coco Peru this on the first season of the podcast, and she wasn't really sure. She didn't have an answer for this. So I would like to ask you, why do you think we see far and away more drag queens than we see drag kings and performers broadly? I think drag queens, I mean, obviously nowadays it's because there is an enormously popular reality show led by one of the most well-known in the mainstream culture, drag queens of our time, that has allowed so many people to access it in a way that has just like blown up extraordinarily. But I think, are all of my answers going to be the patriarchy? I do not know. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, it's like drag queens are led primarily by cis men performing femininity. And there's something that's really accessible to, I think, straight culture within that. It's something that they can understand. I think the idea of a man dressed as a woman has been comedic fodder and entertainment since literally Shakespeare. It was That was where dr the word drag came from, it was dressed as a girl. Drag kinging is a historically like queer women performing masculinity. And that's not something that is as accessible to like, look at these gorgeous, sassy men dressing as women and lip syncing Donna Summer. Like, it's fun. It's great. It's a different art form. At least here, there's a lot of uptick in drag kinging. And it's something I'm really interested in exploring. I'm, I'm um, starting a project with this amazing filmmaker and another producer to really be exploring drag kinging more. So something that has been on my mind for years. And um, it seems like now's the time. So. Well, looking forward to that. <laughs> On the internet, people have opinions, of course. What? And I, I know. <laughs> it gets scary. An older trans man got into an argument with you, starting with the classic phrase, I'm not transphobic, but dot, dot, dot. Can you share about what happened and what you said? Yeah, I get into we'll say conversations with a lot of older queer people, trans or cis, just queer identified that are, that start, I'm not transphobic, but, and it usually concerns trans people playing sports or uh, medical access for teenagers mm -hmm. or young people. And it's always that. And it drives me fucking insane. It's like, first of all, if we're saying I'm not racist, but, or I'm not anything, but like whatever is going to come out of your mouth next, we should know at this point is going to demonstrate that exact thing. Yes. I get really upset at the misinformation that's out there. I'm shocked at how much people don't want to lead with curiosity, that they don't question what that means. And they say, okay, well, when I say that, 
what do I think is happening? It's like, I always ask older people that I'm like, what exactly do you think is happening when you say this? Because it seems like, oh, nine-year-olds are chopping off their boobs. And it's like, well, that's not a thing. And then like, there's this idea that like kids are willy nilly just transitioning all over the place. And it's like, if they had any idea, A, what it took to get to that point of getting your parents or your guardians involved in that, what it took emotionally and psychologically to get to a point where you say, Hey, I'm so, I'm so uncomfortable. A change needs to happen. And I'm sure about this, what it took for the medical access, socially, what it meant to transition financially, what it took to transition all of the gatekeeping and the hurdles that come with access to any of these things. And then we're also in a time where hormone blockers exist, which literally serve to stave things off. Hormone blockers are a temporary way to stop basically the wrong puberty for happening so that like a trans man who is not ready for whatever reason, self-chosen or medically chosen or parentally chosen, is not ready for a larger transition to just simply not have like their breasts come in and their period come in. Because can you imagine you are a 13 or 14 year old and suddenly what you feel like the wrong things are growing in and your body is surging with a chemical and you think I absolutely cannot live this way. And there's nothing I can do about it. I don't have access to care. It's not safe to tell my parents, whatever it is. If hormone blockers were able to just stave that off for a little bit so that you could buy yourself time to talk to your parents about it, buy yourself time for the doctors to take you seriously. Cause they say you're 14 and you don't know any better. You're 17 and you don't know any better. A lot of these kids have to wait till they're 18 so that they can make choices for their own bodies, something that they may have known their entire life. And it crushes me, the suicide attempt rate. It makes such a literal, tangible difference to have even one adult in a child's life who fully understands them, who doesn't have a caveat to saying, well, you don't know. There's just so many false equivalencies that just all they're doing is injuring children. Every argument that we have about a child wanting to play sports, like that is the, that is the point. What is the point of team sports and school sports if not to include children and get them active and get them learning the lessons that you learn when you're on a team and when you're working together? For us to say, no, you don't belong to a child that has a suicide attempt rate that is more than 50%, for us to additionally say, you don't belong here, we don't want you, you can't participate in any of these things, you can't go to the bathroom here. That's the only thing that you are saying to that child is you don't even get to exist on the track team. Disappear yourself. In a study of 104 trans and non-binary youth aged 13 to 20 years, receipt of gender-affirming care, including puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones, was associated with 60% lower odds of moderate or severe depression and 73% lower odds of suicidality over a 12-month follow-up. Another study found that 50.8% of transmasculine adolescents between the ages of 11 and 19 have attempted suicide at least once, and 41.8% of non-binary adolescents have attempted suicide. And there's a lot going on there because... 
like what you're mentioning with youth, usually transition may look like hormone blockers, but it also can be more of a focus on social and legal, right? So socially meaning maybe their name, maybe their pronouns, maybe who knows if they're trans or not, or legally if they're actually changing a name or a gender marker on documentation, things like that. Like that may be more of the focus more than any medical stuff. Because again, typically what happens for youth, like you said, is just the blockers. But just even thinking about like what we consider to be gender affirming surgery, one of the arguments too is cisgender people get them all the time and they don't have all of the gatekeeping that we do as trans people. What it takes for a young person still living at home to get to the realization and get those words out of their mouth. Do you know how sure you have to be to trust your family with that information to say, hey, this thing that you've thought my whole life is not quite true. I'm so uncomfortable. How sure you have to be to get to that? Because there's this idea that like kids are seeking that out and kids are, you know, they think it's really cool and it's really hip. And it's like, no, we just finally have enough representation. So children have the words for it. Trans people have always existed, but they've moved and gone stealth, or they have forced themselves to live a life that hurts so badly. What a more beautiful place that we live in, that kids are comfortable saying like, oh, I now see that thing. I have the words for it. I have a vision of what it could look like to grow up and be you. It's incredible. And it hurts no one. According to The Trevor Project, only one in three LGBTQ youth found their home to be LGBTQ affirming. And it's a tough decision, too, because, and I I had to pull this up on my Instagram because I posted it some time ago and I didn't want to get the ages wrong, but broadly, LGBTQ plus youth may be dependent financially and health-wise on their families until the age of 26, So that's putting a lot on the line. And so the reason why is because at 18 is when you're finally usually able to open a bank account, sometimes at 17, but usually it's 18. So yeah, to even have things like a bank account, you have to wait till then. Um, Or housing, even to like apply for housing, right? To get an apartment, things like that. Then you're looking at 24, if that youth requires federal student aid or FAFSA, if they're going to college because they have to report the parents' income or the family's income. And then up to 26, if they have to be on the parent or caregiver's health insurance plan. Adding that as well, it is a huge gamble. And sometimes youth may not be able to come out when they want to to their families and may have to wait if they have any reason to believe that they'll be kicked out that they'll, you know, just anything, anything that it doesn't go the way that they were hoping as far as just being loved unconditionally for who they are. I was kicked out of my house when I was right around 17, 18, my senior year. And the butterfly effect that that had on my life and of my growth was so substantial. I feel in some ways like that's why my journey is kind of took a little while because I was so imprinted with the scarring of like, hey, when I tell you who I am, I lose everything. I was top of my class. I was a straight A student in all AP and honors classes. And I started drinking and smoking and self-harming and got my first B and C and D and 
went to college and ended up having to leave three months later because I had a mental breakdown. When you lose all of that, it it really is a shock to the system. And I've been very lucky to access therapy and I'm eight years sober and, you know, but it's, it's brutal. You get to a point where you can't not say it, at least for me, that was how it felt. And I risked everything and I'm happy about where my life is today. I've learned how to really take care of myself. I, you know, I've gone through the fire, but fuck. And if a kid can weigh all of that and still say, I have to tell somebody, I think we can believe that kid. <laughs> it's the least we can do is believe that they know what they're saying. Oh, it gets me fucking mad, Chris Angel. I tell you what. <laughs> I, I feel your passion and I match it. I'm, Great, but yes. But I'm also trying not to sweat with you because it's hot enough. I am fully sweating. I'm enraged. <laughs> <laughs> we don't always get to see trans elders and that has at least a few definitions, because when I think of trans elders, I'm thinking of people who are further along in life age-wise, and I think of people who have been out for a period of time, and the time is relative, I can't say like five years or what, but like someone as young as Jazz Jennings, who we've seen grow up, I would also consider to be a trans elder. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of definitions there. However, specifically focused on age, we have some still with us today. I'm thinking Kate Bornstein, Dr. Jameson Green, Eddie Izzard. And I'm wondering, what do you think it means? You know, because there's just something about seeing older trans people to, I think, give us hope and that it's possible to live that long. But what does it mean to you? to see older trans folks out in the world and being vocal or just living their lives. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. My friend Jess Dugan is this incredible photographer and has a, uh, a project that turned into a book called To Survive on the Shore. Oh my God, you gotta check it out. Jess went across the entire country photographing trans elders, people 65 and older. It's an entire book. I was visiting Jess when they were sort of starting to put the pages, like I walked into their studio and it was like all these things and I was just shook. It was beyond my imagination that there were trans people older than 65 existing all over the country. You know, representation matters has become such a catchphrase, but genuinely that's what it means to me is like, oh, I can actually see what it means to grow up. I can actually see that these people have done it. And you know, the younger generation gets a lot more of that now. They're able to see people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and all the way up. But I, you know, I didn't, we didn't have that. It's gorgeous. It makes me feel less alone. And it makes me feel really excited about being part of a legacy of brave and hot people. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us. And I'm, I'm just talking about trans people I've spoken to who are either part of the binary or outside of it. In private conversations, we'll talk about our suicide ideation that we've experienced or maybe continue to experience. I don't know, like I'm going to be 35 this year. And something that I share with a lot of my friends is we just didn't think we'd live this long. I'm literally planning my 40th birthday party and people are like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I've literally never thought about it. Yeah. I have no idea. Because I'm non-binary, 
you know, so what is it? Theyhood? I don't know. I don't want to <laughs> like feel like I need to come up with a word for it. But I, it, you know, when I look at people who are older than me and share the same identity of non-binary, or even if they're gender fluid or, or anything else under that non-binary umbrella, I just don't see myself in it. And then it gets really hard for me to think about like, what do I see for my life? What milestones do I want? And I think I come back to something we talked about previously, where if, you know, queerness is part of that is just like embracing and saying, fuck these heterosexual norms and beyond, like we are free to decide how we want our relationships to look. I think of queer platonic relationships. We don't have to be necessarily in a romantic or sexual relationship with everyone. And we can have these different like gray areas, et cetera. But like, I feel the overwhelm of that. And I come back to, I just never expected to live this long. So is there anything in particular you see for yourself or how do you, how do you deal with that thought that may be in your head? I'm at a place in my healing where the world is my oyster. I really can envision a very big life for myself and I'm going after it and I'm really excited by it. I, I used to despair so much. I just constantly kept trying to make myself small. I was trying to people please, and I was trying to survive. And now I feel like enough tough things have happened that have you know, put me through the fire that I truly feel free in a way that I, I've never felt. And I am ready to kick some ass, baby. I really <laughs> am. <laughs> I love it. We kind of already talked about this, but... I wanted to give you another opportunity if you wanted to answer with anything else. What's an argument against trans people you would like to address right now? I mean, there's the fundamental argument that is happening in our country that trans people shouldn't exist. There's hundreds, literally hundreds, record-shattering bills and proposals locally, statewide, against trans people's very existence. And it's disgusting and it's fascism. If you are somebody who is a, I'm not transphobic, but I would like you to examine why your body is taking in right-wing talking points and absorbing them and thinking that they're okay. What's really been scary for me too is it's just not getting a lot of coverage. Yeah. Because it's exhausting. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like whack-a-mole. And then People will be a lot more familiar with like Texas and Florida, but they don't realize what's happening in many other states as well. Well, and this has always happened. I think that this is not just a trans issue. This is what happens to minorities in this country where it's like, okay, women want to get the vote, but black women need to be quiet or you're going to ruin it for the majority of the women. And like feminists want this certain thing, but the lesbians really need to be quiet. Gay people want this thing, but we really just want marriage. So anybody that's like against that, just be quiet. Like this always happens. And it's usually super queer people or, you know, minorities within minorities who are helping the larger thing happen. And then they never get their thanks back. And I think there's this feeling of exhaustion amongst gay people or non-trans queer people that are like, this is this is really exhausting and it and it might you know, wreck it for everybody. And it's like, all of our liberation it rests on all of our liberation. Like there is no pulling that apart. There's no saying if trans people would just be quiet then gay people wouldn't be as hated. We've all fought for the same liberation and it's all tied in. Abortion rights are tied into, that's a bodily autonomy issue. 
It's the same thing as what they're trying to do to trans people, trying to do to people with uteruses. And it's all about the patriarchy. This, please just call this the patriarchy episode. Like, <laughs> I am livid at the patriarchy. The minute I turned into a white man, I was like, what fresh hell is this? Oh, yeah. There's I, a lot of systems we can wag our fingers at. Jesus. So you're going to be 40. What do you hope to see in your lifetime, which right now will manifest, will be long and fulfilling? Holy shit. What a question. What do I, like, personally, this is related to queer people, but I really, really hope that we see a toppling of our current political system. I hope that we get rid of the electoral college because I think it gives a really scary majority to a minority. I hope that we see a restructuring of our two-party system because basically Republicans are right-wing fascists and Democrats are Republicans. Like, I am excited about the progressive wing that's coming through. I am, I got a picture of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on my phone as my screensaver. I look at her every day. That is somebody who is brave and who is doing the work. And so I deeply hope that something that is broken finally crumbles and something better can come in its place to actually serve the majority of people who do want change, who do want um, safety and who do want us to be ruled with love. I, I mean, like get the government out of our house is a Republican ideal. Like the fact that Republicans are constantly coming for people, I'm like, isn't it you who wants the government out of everything? Like, why are you trying to legislate against every person that exists? Still sweating. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Patriarchy and sweating. Um, mm -hmm. That's I'll, I'll, the PD Gibson I'll story. play with that. <laughs> there you go something that's really served me in my life is stopping before i speak and being curious and i think that can serve a lot of people and that includes people who count themselves as allies people who you know count themselves as queer why are we doing it this way and i think i do that why do i think that or why and then i can examine my you know internalized racism or internalized homophobia or transphobia or i think oh this is actually like sort of a shadow thing in myself that has nothing to do, you know, with this other person. So I think I'd just like to say that, like, get, get curious, babies. <laughs> <laughs> What's one allyship tip you'd like for everyone listening to consider? It's a very specific allyship tip. If somebody tells you their new name or their new pronouns, put them in your phone immediately and so that every time they call or text, you see it, and it's a reminder to you before you interact with that person that something has changed. Our arms are in the air. We Our did it. Our arms are in the air. <laughs> like air did, out the pits because we're sweating. <laughs> like we did sports. Oh, my God. PD and I had to stretch out the interview across two days because of internet connectivity issues and Anytime there's tech issues with an episode, I have extra gratitude, not only for the guest's time, but also patience for us to work through it so we can have a good conversation. So PD, thank you and congrats on all of your success. If you haven't seen it yet, go check out the Sympathy Card. You can rent it on a few places like YouTube, Google Play, and Amazon Prime Video. The only other thing I'd love to sneak in before we get to the self-reflection questions is that I am now 35. 
I celebrated my birthday on September 17th, and if you would like to help me celebrate, I'd really, really appreciate it if you could either share this podcast with someone that you think would like it, or if you can leave me a rating or review on Spotify or Apple to help other people find the podcast, it would mean a great deal to me. So thank you so much, and here's those final three self-reflection questions. Number four. Is there a societal expectation of my gender that I don't live up to? How do I feel about that? Number five, do I believe that I can learn from people of all ages? Number six, do I try to lead with curiosity? Visit allyshipisaverb.com for any resources and a full transcript of the episode. And remember... Sometimes allyship means updating people's name and pronouns in your phone.